We got a one-stop shop pass, tryouts, and much more news on this week's episode of the Indie Bar Report Podcast. Episode number 152. Uh, not the first time we've done this intro because it's going to be a technically glitched filled show today, but we're going to fight through it and hopefully the best will come. And yeah, that's all I got so far. Well, you know what? We're just going to battle. We're going to battle through adversity. That's what we're going to, that's what we're going to do today. Sometimes you don't have your A game, but just got to battle through it and put on the show for the people. Exactly. All that stuff that we uh, we preach throughout the year, you know, the battling through stuff, all that crap. You're right. Well, we're going to put that to uh, practice today. Yeah, we got uh, we got a couple of things to talk about. We obviously have our Hall of Fame discussion at the end that we teased. And uh, there's actually been a decent little bit of news. Some more interest to players, some more interest to fans. Well, it's a good mix today. I think we're going to have a good variety of stuff here. And as long as technology permitting, we should have a very, very good show. Yeah, I think it's a good point that you mentioned that there's something for everybody and there's a lot, a lot of unique things, I guess you could say. Yeah, certainly, definitely. So with that, we'll just get right started into those unique things by talking about the Atlantic League ballpark pass. Now, for those that have been following the show for some time, I feel like we've talked about this before and I'm sure you'll either confirm or deny that if you have been following for a while because I feel like this was the plan for the 2020 season, wasn't that? Yeah, similar yes, to it was. Okay, good. I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy because I was looking through all the 2020 and all the 2021 like archives on the Atlantic League site, and I couldn't find any mention of it. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy. Well, Nick, this is the same, this is the same league that has their record book only updated from, from after the 2018 season. So if you're going to the Atlantic League website for archives, you're going to the wrong place. Fair point. We'll refresh the people that have jumped on since the, uh, I guess, early 2020 and tell you what this is all about. Uh, Wednesday, they announced the ballpark pass will be coming back and any season ticket holder. That means if you're a season ticket holder for any of the clubs in the Atlantic League, you will have access to every Atlantic League game to go in person, hence ballpark pass. Uh, simply put, you'll get a card with some sort of ID number or verification number on it, and then you just go to the box office at the stadium you're visiting, and they will give you the uh, ticket for that game. Uh, it's a it's a very good idea, I think. I sure I'm just going to rehash things I said uh, about two years ago, which is it's a good idea. It gets people to the ballpark, lets you kind of keep following your team, it rewards you for having season tickets. There's no real restrictions on this. It's pretty much a straight up, if you have one season ticket, you get one ballpark pass, you get two, you get two, you kind of see uh, where we're going with that. So the only real restrictions are applied locally by the teams. So I imagine those restrictions aren't so much, you know, limit on the amount of tickets you can have. It's more like, okay, uh, we only have these sections available for you, which in all fairness, you're not their season ticket holder and you're stuck getting in there for free. So... I have a hard time complaining about when uh, you're maybe getting a less satisfactory seat than where your season tickets are in an opposing team's ballpark, especially when it's free. So all in all, I think it's a great idea. Like I said, it gets people to the ballpark. It gets fans out there, and it really does encourage, I think, more of that traditional kind of fan experience 
Yeah, it's my, my opinion on this really remains the same as it was back in 2020. I've been a real fan of this idea. Uh, specifically, I, I like it in the sense that fans of teams can go to their closest rivals. Now, of course, a, a fan of Long Island is probably not going to be making the trip down to High Point or Gastonia or Lexington. Um, but it is a big deal that a Long Island Ducks fan can go to Staten, who's a season ticket holder, can go to Staten Island for free, or they can go to Southern Maryland for free, or come playoff time, this happens. I think it's a really, really good idea. It's it's forward thinking. I, I wish more leagues would adopt this sort of policy. Granted, I think, you know, if you did it in the, the Frontier League, would they be willing to do it with some of the teams so close together? I don't know. Uh, obviously, the Atlantic League's a little bit more spread out and less teams and stuff like that. But I, I think it's a really good idea. It's a it's an incentive for people to get season tickets in the first place, which is, of course, really the backbone of every Atlantic League team and their fan base is those season ticket holders. And really where so much of the money that the team makes comes from those season ticket holders. So it's another. it's more of an incentive for them. And of course, like it's how much money are you really like losing with providing this? Not much, right? Because yeah. again, those those people. Let's say like a a barnstormers fan goes to York for the day, uh, and they and they they get in a free ticket. All right, well you're still paying for parking, right? Yeah. Um, they're still making money off concessions. And if you wanted to go to the team store, I mean, I don't know if a Lancaster if a Lancaster fan would want to. Uh, get some York yeah. Reds gear, but if they did, they did. There's still other ways that they can make money that go beyond just the price of admission. Uh, I do agree with all of that, though. I do think it's also a very good point to mention that, yeah, just because you're losing out on the gate revenue of the actual ticket for the person going there, you're still picking up money from them from concessions and merchandise and whatever 50-50 raffle they may do and, and the whole nine otherwise. So you're still getting someone that otherwise wouldn't have shown up in through the door and if it's at the cost of a $15 ticket, then I mean, that's just the price of doing business. And as long as they buy pretty much one or two things while they're inside the ballpark, then you made your money back on it. So that now, so they want to bring a fan or like a friend rather, they still have to buy the friend a ticket unless they have two season tickets. So in the end, it really does kind of work out. Plus, I think it does present an opportunity to do maybe like group road trips almost. This is why I want to put it. I believe when we had uh, Eric on from Staten Island, he mentioned the possibility of trying to do some sort of a bus trip to Long Island to try and get fans there. Having something like this with the ballpark pass makes it easier for your uh, season ticket holder base to just kind of pick up and go there because their only expense is actually getting to the opposing ballpark, not getting in there. Anything else is, you know, an additional cost to improve your experience. But I do think... Uh, Something like this is an interesting idea, and I do think it's a very good idea. Yeah, I think you make a good point about the bus trips, because that, that does make that a lot more feasible, especially for whoever on that bus trip would be a season ticket holder. Uh, so that would certainly be something, because I know uh, back when Somerset was in the was in the Atlantic League, they would have a bus trip every season. Uh, sometimes it would be like just to the All-Star game. Sometimes they would be going to an actual game, um, something like that. So... That makes it that makes it a lot easier. And again, like these places aren't selling out, so yeah. like it's really not. It's it's always a good idea. Like when people are just out, like handing out tickets in the community. Obviously, you don't want to hand out an yeah. insane amount, 
but here, here and there, and especially with people like this who you know are intrigued by the Atlantic League product and will be consistent and are consistent uh, fans of it, it, it's a good it's a good idea to reward them. And, um, and I know this was a an idea back in in 2020. So when they when they reintroduced this for the 2022 season. Uh, I guess no, no one was really that surprised, uh, but I'm, I'm definitely a fan. I think it's a good idea. Uh, there's not really a big cost to it, uh, but big reward for sure. Definitely. More bodies mean more potential revenue, and that's always a positive thing. Like you said, well, there's always empty seats, so if you could put somebody in that seat, you might as well, because at least it gives you a shot at uh, generating some revenue from them uh that said we will kind of continue on because we've kind of talked this to, to death at this point we got some tryout news before we move on to other stuff uh because i know some people are very interested in the tryouts uh we'll start with the frontier league their tryout and draft will be april 25th and 26th in florence kentucky uh the y'all's ballpark uh it's pretty much camp day for day one uh, a lot of just infield drills, outfield drills, some minor bullpen sessions, things like that uh, for your day one experience. Day two is more of a more games and more things based like that and a draft at the end of it. All players will receive analytical data based off of their camp and game data and that they generate over the two days at the conclusion of the tryout. And uh, then obviously, like I said, there'll be a draft in team players will get uh, picked and hopefully signed from there uh so if you're interested in the frontier league draft uh there you go as far as the atlantic league draft is again going to be done through prospect dugout that tryout and draft is going to be march 22nd and 23rd day one is like a pro day camp day very similar to the frontier league again a lot of drills a lot of bullpen sessions things like that um on day two if you have Single A or higher experience, I believe is what was said in the, uh, in the posting. Then in your pitcher, you can advance right to day two. You don't have to throw the bullpen session. You just go right on the board. If you don't or you're a position player, that stuff you're doing the day one stuff. Uh, day two invites because a manager has to invite you back for day two unless you meet that prior criteria of being a, a single A or higher pitcher. Uh, you get invited back for day two. There is kind of a kind of games. I think they're more of a mini circuit type thing. And uh, then at the conclusion of that, there is a there is a draft, and there are guaranteed contracts going out there. I believe it's twenty guaranteed contracts from this last year. Josh Sala got signed from this, so there's definitely a possibility of success here that exists at the tryout. And of course, we have two new teams again, so that's even more jobs, more eyes that need to get on uh, for you. So uh, if you want more information about either the Atlantic League Tryout or Draft or the Frontier League Tryout or Draft, go to the show notes on the website, IndieBartReport.com, show notes heading, go all the way to the bottom, and we will have links to both of them in the show notes for episode 152. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they're really doing this with the, with the pitching and trying to incentivize um, more pitchers with some uh, higher minor league experience to come out. So uh, I think this is the first time they've done something like that, if I remember correctly. So uh, I mean, overall, just basic tryout stuff. But I think that part is that part is interesting. Uh, that pitchers with 
you know, uh, yeah. with a little bit better experience in, in minor league ball or being more incentivized, like, hey, you don't have to come throw a bullpen and then throw uh, against live hitters the next day. So I think that I think that's a decent idea. You never know who you'll find at these trials. We've seen in the past that uh, they've had some, they found some pretty good names uh, from these trials. Of course, from the Atlantic League, you look at Josh Solomon, who was back in the Rangers system now after after a monster year in Gastonia. So you never know who you're going to find at these tryouts who are just sitting out there and just working on their own. Maybe I haven't played in a while. So um, those tryouts have had some so recent success. So I don't see why that wouldn't continue. Yeah, no, it definitely is the case. Dan, I do think you bring up an interesting point about the pitching exemption. I think it definitely does kind of stem off of last year where it's like, hey, we really would like to not use pitchers right out of college. We like to go back to having professional pitchers for the most part. Not to say there's anything wrong with the college pitchers, but it's just not something that the Atlantic League likes to do normally. So I definitely think that's part of it. There's obviously a, a handful more teams now, so everybody's competing for pitching. So if you can kind of like say, hey, there's guaranteed contracts at stake here, and you don't really have to throw the bullpen unless you want to, you can just kind of show up and have a good shot at it. I do think that's interesting as well. I will agree with you there, so... Um, on that note, I think we're pretty much good. We'll go to the last little kind of thing of news before we talk about just, uh, some general discussion points before getting into the Hall of Fame discussion, which is kind of the heart of this episode. <coughs> uh, in the, well, it's college league ball, but it involves a, a American Association League team, Lake Country, the Dock Hounds. At their ballpark, they're going to be housing a summer college team. Uh, there's more information that's going to be coming on the team in the future, but it's going to be a, a five-team league that they're joining, uh, the Dairyland League. I have absolutely no idea what the hell the Dairyland League is, and I'm going to defer to the Summer Collegiate League expert on this show. And it is a 34-game schedule, 16 games are going to be played, and I believe it's Wisconsin Brewing Company Stadium that the Dockhounds play at, so they're going to be played there. And this will take will start in late May, early June. Uh, this is in addition to the the American Association uh, games that we played there. So the Dockhounds add a kind of second tenant here with this summer college league team. Kind of a thing of note, especially given the time of year and the fact the Dockhounds already have their schedule out. So it's going to be kind of fun to see how this kind of gets worked into the ballpark schedule. But we did see that uh, High Point did do something Similar to this, if to that again, like because the Dockham, does the Dockham do the does the Dockham Stadium have a uh, artificial turf? They, it does, the yeah. New construction, okay. artificial turf. Yep. Yeah, I, I feel like that's the only way you would be able to pull off something like that. Mm. Uh, just because, it, you know, it it, it would yeah. just be too much stress on a on a field that's it's just simply uh, just grass. Yeah. So. Yeah, an extra 34 games plus any other festivity going on on it, it would be a lot, yeah. Exactly. It's just way too hard. So um, I think with the artificial turf, that makes it easier. Now, I I don't know how much um, benefit it'll have attendance-wise because, you know, it's not like I'm really a major summer college league. But, I mean, any any extra use you could get out of the ballpark is certainly not a bad idea from a team perspective. And if the field can take it with, art, with the artificial turf, I think that's a, a it's not, it couldn't be a bad idea. I'll say that. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's something of note. It's just kind of funny that out of all the leagues, 
they pick the uh, the Dairyland College League. Like I, I've never even heard of this league. It's got five. Quite frankly, yeah, I have not either. Yeah, what's kind of fun is when you go to their website. It does look like something out of like the late nineties, early two thousands, and I believe it's powered by Point Streak. So I don't know uh, what to make of that. It's not necessarily a bad thing per se, but I no, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing either. If you see where I'm getting at, so. Um, well, I remember when the Atlantic League was. I remember when the Atlantic League was all about point streak. You know, I I prefer point streak to the Atlantic League system, to be quite honest, because at least with point streak, you can sort by stuff. That makes it a lot easier. Because, like I said last year, there's a reason why until every other league season wrapped up. For the player and pitcher of the week, it wasn't, I don't think I ever picked an Atlantic Lake pitcher because it was just too difficult to actually find it. Cause you'd have to go through every box score of every Atlantic League game, write down every player's stats, then calculate them all by hand, and then come up with an answer. So I was thinking, you know, already the offensive numbers are really skewed here. To do all that, it's going to be at least three hours of work. Because you have to go through and do it all by hand when I could just sort through point streak and knock this out in about 15, 20 minutes. That's kind of why I never picked them. So honestly, I take point streak over uh, wherever the Atlantic League's doing with that. What I will say is that what I like about the, um, the Atlantic League system is I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that during the actual like game and like you're following like pitch by pitch on game day or whatever, yeah. I think it is cooler because it honestly just looks like MLB at that. And I think yeah. that I, I actually like that as opposed to point streak, whatever system that ended up I'll, being. I'll give you that. Yeah, I'll agree with that. That did. But I, I see what you're saying about it being more difficult to kind of just sort things, and it, it's it's not as simple as as it could be. Yeah, I just it's. Sometimes it's just so unneed, unneededly complicated. And when you're looking through stats, like even going through like the game by game breakdown, it's kind of annoying because it's all, it's just like gray on white. So it's almost kind of hard to follow sometimes if you're not paying 100% attention to it. So, uh, I just, this, the whole site really needs to be redone, to be quite honest. Oh, there's, 100%. There's stuff that you can keep, but there's a lot of it that just needs more attention. It needs a lot of love, that site. But, um, 100%. But uh, with that, we're going to go into some of the discussion topics here because I keep seeing a lot of uh, articles popping up about independent league baseball. I'm sure that has uh, no coincidence with the lockout at all. Uh, so, and, uh, none at all. Yeah, which actually, that's probably something we should talk about. It's the lockout related to this. That may be something to talk about either next week or the week after, depending on, uh, on how things go. But as far as these kind of things here, I just kind of picked a few things that kind of stood out over the last week and change uh, across more of the national media outlets, really the Athletic, MLB Network, and ESPN. So, you know, major uh, major places that normally don't write about uh, independent league ball and the whole kind of independent experience. So uh, we'll start off with the one that's really directly related to independent league baseball in the uh, Staten Island manager announcement in uh bringing on Eduardo Alfonso. He was on MLB Network, talked a little bit about it. So I figured we could just kind of talk about the whole little interview. And of course, everything that all these articles and in this instance, the interview itself is all linked in the show notes 
Uh, so be sure to go there and check that all out. So a couple of things of note that I found from that interview was he did mention it's going to be different from Brooklyn. That's kind of obvious ones, affiliated ones not. There's a lot of differences there. Uh, and more of a personal approach in regards to that where you, you're able to actually affect things and that there's no real, uh, philosophy established yet that it's more of a kind of openness to anything, adapt to the players you have around you and find ways to make them succeed based off of what we know they're good at. And uh, so there's really no comment on the rules. Those are just kind of three things I kind of picked up immediately after listening to that, uh, that interview. It was a short interview, but still it, there's stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for, for one, it's, uh, it's very interesting that MLB network is interviewing a, uh, uh, someone who was just named uh, the, a manager of an Atlantic League team, so yeah. that's kind of odd. So huh, just so to, good. Just start off with that, but you know, I guess it, I guess it makes sense just because of the lockout and stuff like that. But exactly. uh, he did hit on um, a few of the points that were what make being a manager of the Brooklyn Cyclones being a lot different from being a manager in the Atlantic League, of course. You don't really have to follow what the Mets have to follow, uh, what the Mets tell you to do. Um, and you're simply just playing to win. You know, and I think you, part of, part of him that makes that is really exciting. Kind of using my own words here, but, uh, using this X number draft pick where we paid a couple, we paid a few million dollars. He doesn't have to play every day when simply in the Atlantic League, he's just running the best nine out there and trying to win baseball games. I think that's something that, that he seemed, uh, a little bit more excited about, but you know, he did acknowledge the, the, the big difference that it's a lot different than being a manager in affiliated ball. It's a whole new ball game with so many more aspects to it. And you're in a lot more control than you are uh, with Brooklyn. I mean, that's why we see it in affiliated ball managers uh, change so often. I mean, it seems like, like when's the last time you see like a, like a manager stick with a minor league affiliate for more than like maybe two or three years. Like you just don't, don't really see yeah. it. They're either move, they're either moving on, they don't get their contract renewed or, and then it's, it's quite simply if they get, if they don't get their contract renewed, they just bump everybody up one and, and the process starts all over again. So it, it's, it, it's a lot different of a system and you have to, and while managing the game itself is mostly the same, there's, there's some differences as far as, um, you know, who, who you can play and it's simply just, you're trying to win the game. It's a lot simpler. Yeah, it definitely is. I, they kept hitting on like the shift rule, which honestly, again, it never really, like you could tell they, they that just shows, it shows, it shows that they don't like that. They don't really know what they're talking about as far as the Atlantic league ball and independent league ball. Like it shows that they're kind of just like, look at it. Ooh, shift rule. That's going to make a difference. No, it doesn't make a difference. And if you did like a shred of research going into it, you would know that. Yeah. Which at the same time, I don't necessarily blame them for that because I mean, their job is, you know, major league baseball. That's what's paying their bills. So I don't blame them at all for that, but it's just kind of interesting where it's like, you probably could have just like watched three or four games from like 2018 and known for beyond a shadow of a doubt, they don't shift because it just kind of pointless at this level to even shift. But, but yeah, I I do think that was something that was interesting there, uh, that you brought up there. It's that kind of emphasis on winning, but it definitely kind of, like, I don't want to say it seemed directionless, but when talking about like the mentality of going forward, it did seem a little bit like, okay, we have to kind of build from the bottom here. And 
did seem a little bit like, all right, I need to figure out how we're going to do this, which, I mean, in all fairness, it's a new organization, first time independent league manager, and you know Eddie Medina is going to have a, a large part in helping kind of go through this process of independent league baseball. So I, I will say that is of interest to me to see how this roster winds up turning out because there doesn't seem to be much of a mentality in there. And obviously, you kind of shape your identity around the team you have. But we've seen other managers in the past. I look particularly at Anthony Barone in Milwaukee and go, well, his team's identity is they're normally strong pitching teams. And then you get a couple of guys that can really hit well, too, around it. Now, obviously, with Milwaukee, it helps when you have Adam Brett Walker there. I mean, that's kind of like a guaranteed 25 home runs bare minimum. But... You know, it's it's still kind of interesting that there wasn't, like, any mention of, like, okay, this is the kind of team I want to have put up in there. That, and also, like I said, the, it seemed like they were expecting the roles to be a lot more important uh, to this whole interview that, than there really was, because there really isn't much to it. Well, to, to be honest with you, I think that it's hard for... Even in press conferences, or well, obviously this wasn't a press conference yeah. per se, but it wasn't it was an interview where the members of the media are, are asking questions. Yeah, I don't know. Like when people say, when people ask, like, "Oh, what kind of team is going to be built?" Like you kind of just get the same answers. Like, "Oh, we're going to be tough. We're going to represent the people, uh, like the people of the city. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna play smart. We're gonna play hard. We're always going to play a hundred percent. Like you won't. Like you you're not going to get." For example, if you were to interview, let's say, like Brett Jody, like before he takes the job with Somerset, his yeah. his job isn't his his he's not going to answer truthfully and uh, yeah, we're just going to go all out into starting pitching and uh, hopefully we'll score like three runs a game and win. Like he's not going to say that. So um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard. It, there, it's really only only time will tell as far as that. Even though it's kind of a cliche, it's probably true. Yeah, you just got to see like what kind of rosters actually actually ends up being shaped as a result of this. Uh, so to really kind of make that determination because the reality is like all of them kind of answer the same that they're, that they're going to be tough. They're going to, they're going to play fast, play hard. Um, you know, the, we want to, we want to do everything right. We want to, yeah. we want to pitch, we want to hit, we want to throw strikes, like all this stuff. So um, that, that's only time will tell as far as like what kind of team he wants to build. And I mean, they haven't signed any players yet, so we don't really know. Yeah. yeah. I suppose my disappointment more or less stems from the fact that, you know, like when I see something like that, and I see the Atlantic leagues like promoting like, Oh, look, we were on, you know, we got mentioned on MLB network. I kind of want them to talk to the manager of the fairy Hawks and not, you know, the major league baseball player. Eduardo Alfonso, you know, I, I understand why you do it that way. More people have interest in the player than yeah, the, the manager. So I, I don't fault him for that, but it is kind of disappointing still nonetheless that, uh, that we didn't get more on that front. I was just kind of hoping for more, I suppose. Are you surprised though? Not in the least bit, but you know, it's still kind of disappointing nonetheless. Yeah. My expectations for MLB network generally aren't high for pretty much anything. So. <laughs> Uh, but all right. Well, we could always switch now to uh, some areas that there are you can have fairly high expectations for. And honestly, I think the the last two, the Prince stories, I think really delivered here. And they all well, the first one here it's mainly about Josh Sala. 
And obviously he's had his struggles and, and everything behind that. And I'd encourage people to read the athletic article. It's, a, it's very well written. And they, they talk about his battle with addiction and when he got released from the Rays and his whole mentality and, and the whole turnaround that is. And honestly, it just it was a really feel-good story. And that's just really what I wanted to talk about because it just shows kind of like how you can turn yourself around and right the ship and still get back on the path you thought you'd be on, albeit in a much different manner. You know, and I just thought it was a real, like it was a really good, I keep saying feel good story, but it, from where we started, the path we went along the whole way and then where we've ended up on, it does feel that way. And, you know, you, you come away really rooting for Josh Sala and everything about it. So I, I just really wanted to kind of mention that because it, it was a, I thought it was very well written. I thought it was very good. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was, he's a guy that once you, once you kind of knew his story and his personal struggles with, with the Rays, and it kind of just goes to show you that when you, when you give like an 18, 19 year old kid, um, like millions of dollars as a first round pick, it's tough. Yeah. Right. Cause it, it's some people are just not really mature enough at that age to, to handle that kind of responsibility and like what, what to do with that money. And it's a lot of pressure and some people don't handle it well. So I, I think that the store is very well written. It's really, really great to see, um, how Salah's, uh, his path and like that kind of, not even so much like the playing days, but the journey back to it. Yeah. Uh, not just like, oh, well, he did this in with Bowling Green and Class A and then. He, he did this in, in, uh, in, in high A ball. And then, but like, it's just that journey to get back to, Hey, I want to try out for the Atlantic League. I'm ready to take this step. I feel like I'm ready. And of course, he impressed so many people in, in Florida at the, at the prospect dugout showcase yeah. enough to, enough to get signed for, by Gastonia. But you know, it just, it just shows that you're, that people have the ability to like to, to clean up to clean up their lives and uh, yeah. and to really and to really make a difference and of course now I mean the fact that he's with the Texas Rangers is just freaking awesome I mean oh yeah it is it is uh it is so awesome that they were able that he's he was able to turn his life around and now he's back in affiliated ball and you know we'll see where and we'll see where that goes and regardless whether even if, even if he spends like twenty games in affiliated ball and maybe either is done or heads back to uh heads heads back to independent ball i mean the the success is there and uh just the fact that he's able to get back to this point after literally not playing for for so long before going back to that the tryout in florida is just a testament to um to how he's turned his life around and, and it's really inspiring and it's it's a really awesome awesome story and you, I, I agree with what you said that at the end that you just really come away rooting for for Sala and his and his success in the Rangers organization. Yeah, and it really does show you the importance of having a, a strong support system because I mean you mentioned it a lot that it the current support system he has is what's kind of you know you're battling for that he's battling for his son he's battling you know for everything around him and it's you know the victory isn't making the major leagues although of course you'd love to see him make the major leagues and win a few games for the for the texas rangers but the victories are just you know every day they're small and it just 
like every step of the way, you know, you see, especially in the beginning when we're, he's getting towards the end of the time at the raising, he sees like what's happening with Matt Bush. And he's like, well, that's just not going to be me. And then you could just kind of see the whole turnaround he's made as a person. This is a really good story. And it's really inspirational. And all in all, you, you're right. You, you just really root for Josh Saul. And I really hope that, uh, he does kind of make his way through it. And even if it doesn't work out as a player, find something, you know, where he's able to <clears throat> keep working in baseball or doing whatever it is he wants or needs to do. Because like I said, you really come away rooting for him here. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just really, just hope, really just rooting for, for the best and anything. I don't want to say that anything that happens in his base that like baseball wise is relevant at this point because it's definitely not, but yeah. the victory, the victory, the personal victory has already, has already been won. Just the fact that yeah. he was able to get in, himself into enough shape yeah. uh, and turn his life around to be that, to be that leader um, and to, to essentially play pro baseball at a high level, which is, which is incredible for yeah. what he's been through and the amount of time he had off. Absolutely. So, uh, Best to him and going to the, the next two stories. We can kind of combine them because they're very, very similar. And they even quote some of the same people he's next to. One's from the athletic, one's from ESPN. Both of them deal with uh, teams that were affiliated, no longer affiliated. And there's a lot to unpack from both of them. I'd recommend, uh, reading them both so that way you kind of know where we're getting each from. Whatever we talk about is from the articles. It just may get mixed up between the two because they are extremely similar. Although I will say I have to, to go into the one to pull up uh, Levine's quote from the Yankees about uh, the nostalgic partners because he flamed him in the one quote. Uh, but that was from the ESPN article, so I got to pull that up. But uh, before I do that, in the in both of them, they really just kind of tell you about the scramble and the kind of just how a lot of these teams are kind of left high and dry. But the one thing that I kind of kept coming back to is a lot of these teams say the same thing as like, yeah, it was the toughest year we've had, but it's also the most fun year we've had. And that they've kind of going back to independently or going to independently baseball because most of these teams were, or all of them were always uh, affiliated. <coughs> uh, it kind of revitalized, I don't want to say their love for the game because I'm not sure they ever stopped loving it, but it made you realize how much fun you can have when you don't have a major league team kind of hawking over your shoulder watching what you're doing, saying you better not do something that's going to hurt the major league brand and kind of watching them from afar and kind of maintaining that autonomy and saying, all right, yeah, we may be on our own for, you know, if a player gets hurt, filing the workman's comp, coordinating care, all of that. We may be on our own for paying salaries, figuring out catering, doing all these other things, but we're also able to do whatever we want. No one's here to tell us no anymore. The only thing that's constraining us is our budget. Because we can do anything else. And I think that you really see a lot, particularly with Andy Shea too. And when we get done discussing these articles and we get into our discussion off of uh, like what criteria would be for an independent league hall of fame. Andy Shea is a dude that I honestly think in a few years from now, as long as both his teams are still independent and he's still leading the charge like he is, he's the guy that does warrant discussion because he really seems like he is like taking like a fish to water or when it comes to independent league baseball, because he seems like he's really kind of enjoying it where he's where there's a couple of quotes in here where people are going at first, we would have done anything to stay affiliated. And now, you know what, we're, we're kind of happy with where we're at. 
But yeah, I think it's it's really cool to see that these teams, it's really that adjustment in mindset. And of course, that, that indie ball stigma that was there, it, it kind of gets disproved. And then there's no better example of of disproving that indie ball stigma, really, than teams who know both worlds. And they know, not even just going from independent league baseball to the uh to affiliated ball, but making the jump in the opposite direction is is really interesting to see uh, how teams how teams are able to adjust to it and the things that that they undoubtedly get better right and yeah. they, they get better because they can do what they want for the promotions and they can really better connect with that local community. When in reality, the the MLB team doesn't really care about their local community, right? Yeah. I mean, it's very obvious when they've cut so many teams, right? They, yeah. they don't really care about the communities. Why, and why, why should they? They care about the MLB team. They care about the parent club. It's all about, all right, how can we best connect to our uh, to our local community and we can do whatever we want? I think that's the sentiment you're getting with a lot of these teams uh, who who have gone from affiliated ball to independently ball. Now, of course, there's there's certain advantages. Like we're not, you can't sugarcoat that. Yeah. That it is tougher financially to make it. There's no doubt about that. However, uh, I think that there's other parts of it where it could be a lot more beneficial and a lot better. And I don't know, like as far as like finances, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on on uh, minor league baseball finances. But I mean, if you if you do well especially long-term and you can build some sort of brand with your community and you can do well. I mean, that, that, that's all that matters, even whether it's uh, affiliated ball or independent ball. And as, as a lot of people have mentioned in the past, a lot of fans don't really care yeah. like about uh, if, if you're affiliated with a, um, a major league team or it's just an Atlantic league team or whatever league you, you may be in. Yeah. That they don't really that they don't really care what if you have like an MLB logo on the side of your um patched on like one of your arms. It doesn't really matter. So um it's really interesting to see that these owners are, are realizing that and they're saying, Oh wow, we can do a lot more things with this than we ever could as an affiliated market. Yeah, I think really the only markets where it may have any effect at all were if you were AAA or something like that. But even then I, I it really doesn't matter because like you said and like we've said in dozens of times in the past, people are just looking for a night out. They really could care less about are you affiliate, are you not affiliate, and it just is. It's really kind of it's it's great to see that the people are starting to realize that. I mean, there's the one quote from the owner, and I believe, oh, who was it? I want to say it's one of the teams that went to the prospect league. That's in the top one uh, in the athletic athletic article that says exactly that much. We were surprised that nobody actually cares about players being part of a major league system and i it's just kind of like well yeah no one does like look at all these other teams and like how well they do uh, a couple of the things i thought that were interesting was um how much these evaluations fell for teams like vermont's evaluation for example they were at about eight nine million dollars it plummeted to one million dollars after they lost that affiliation and I mean, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow to just see seven, eight million dollars go up in smoke overnight because of one decision that you had no control over. Like that, that I will admit is, is awfully rough. And that there are obviously, uh, there's a lot of other issues here for 
you know, teams that remained affiliated. Uh, obviously, there seems to be a general sentiment around um, the affiliated minor leagues that there's going to be more cutting of teams, that it's not going to stay at 120, and people think it could go to 90 or even 60, which I don't know how you're going to make 60 work across 30 major league teams. Everyone has two minor league affiliates. That just that doesn't seem like it's going to work out right. It seems like you need at least three, uh, but to cut even more, I, I don't know what that's going to work out. I mean, it could work out well for independent leagues. Obviously, there'll be a lot of markets here that will be open that you could go to, but it's kind of funny uh, just seeing that, that kind of sustainability here because also we mentioned in the past that, you know, or it was mentioned in the articles rather, that Major League Baseball is throwing some money towards some teams. And obviously, they're not going to keep doing that. At a certain point, they're going to turn the tap off. And then what happens there? And there's a lot of other questions that get raised. There's some questions also about equity firms. I believe Endeavor was the one particularly mentioned. And there is one thing I want to mention about that before I go into more uh, I guess independent related uh, topics from these two was how uh, these equity firms are buying them up. You know, uh, Major League made a rule where it's you can only own 24, and I don't believe it's any more than a certain number at particular levels. I think like eight or nine at a particular level. Uh, but <clears throat> it seemed like from what I gather from the ESPN article that a lot of these firms, particularly Endeavor, because that is the one that constantly comes back to, um, that they seem to want to kind of almost nationalize these teams where it's like, hey, we're going to try and promote them nationally. And that just doesn't seem to be the way to go for minor league baseball. Local community focus is the way you kind of win as a team. You know, you someone from, yeah, someone from St. Louis is not going to be going to, you know, I believe they're AAA affiliates in Springfield, so I'm not sure how often they're going from St. Louis to Springfield to see their AAA affiliate. I'm not sure how often, you know, someone from, you know, the greater Queens area is going to Syracuse to see that affiliate. Like, I, I don't see how a nationalizing effect really is great. I mean, like, they mentioned, like, cutting to minor league games during MLB broadcasts. I suppose that's cool if you're into prospects and things like that, but I don't think it's going to make me go, oh boy, I need to make sure I get to Binghamton to see a Rumble Pony game so that way I could see whomever is playing. It's That really isn't how it's going to work. If I'm in northern New Jersey, I'm not going to go up to Binghamton especially for that. I'll wait until they come by Somerset or by Hartford or wherever that's close. Like, I, I don't agree with that strategy. And I honestly don't think uh, having equity firms buying teams is a positive idea. And I don't think it's a good idea or a sustainable idea in the long term. Not at all. It's all it's all because of, in the interest of what the MLB wants and what Rob Manfred wants. That's what, yeah. it, that's what matters at the end of the day. You're right. Like, look at the Dodgers. Like, the AAA affiliates in Oklahoma City. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course they're not going to. Like, you talking about, like, some national national unity it doesn't make any sense like for minor league teams because it's not how that it's not how it works and it's not what's proven uh, to be successful in that market so uh, I, I agree i think it's it's there are certain things that minor league team that the mlb is doing with minor league teams that are not good ideas it's, it could be a blessing in disguise for people to get out of that um to get out of that mess in a way. So while it's probably good for the MLB teams, it's not good for the minor league teams. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Only two other points that I wanted to mention here uh, before we move on to, you know, the Hall of Fame discussion like we were talking about. Um, apparently, 
there are there were talks between Lowell and the Atlantic League. Like we all were kind of saying, it makes a lot of sense for them to go to Lowell, but it's Lowell holding out hope for an affiliated team still, which I would hope after, you know, like this seems like the perfect kind of time to dispatch Andy Shea to go talk to Lowell and go, look, I know what you're thinking, but it really is a lot better than what you think. And like, I feel like he can probably make a very good pitch to Lowell because I mean, how many more years are you going to go without having any baseball in hope of waiting it out? There's only so long you can go without professional baseball before you're just not going to get it back. So, I mean, come on. Just join the Atlantic League already. We all want you to do it. Just do it. Um, but that and also King County. I kind of want to mention King County a bit here. And uh, it definitely they're definitely wanting to get back to affiliated ball. And so they mentioned their expenses went to 700000 from 150000 which admittedly is a huge jump. I mean, that's. That's a crazy jump there. Uh, but I, I want to know what, if they managed to haul in more money, what everything looked like financially, more than just what your expenses went to. What was your income looking like? And all sorts of other uh, elements there as well. It's something I'd like to know from the King County side of things. But uh, and I understand, like I said, that the 700000 from 150000 is a large, you know, large jump there. But the end quote from them, really kind of seals at home and when i read it i was like oh man i really want to know what uh what josh shop was thinking when he heard this quote from uh it was curtis hogg if i want i just want to make sure i have it 100 correct so that way i'm not misquoting somebody yep curtis hogg uh, vice president general manager of king county cougar so listen to the quote and just tell me what you think josh shop was thinking when he heard this make no bones about it we'd prefer to be an affiliated part of major league baseball it's the goal eventually it's a different world so far, so good. The fans have embraced it. The beer is still cold. The hot dogs are still good. The bottom part, obviously, fine. The top yeah. part of that, I, you know, I really would not like that if I'm the commissioner of a league that that team's in and they're saying, yes, we're openly looking to leave. Like, yeah, I understand the context is the context is different. I, I totally get that. That it's like, oh, well. You know, we're not necessarily looking to leave because we don't like the American Association. We're looking to leave because we want to be affiliated. I get that. I totally get that. And I'm don't, again, I'm not begrudging them for that. Don't get that wrong. But still, you really would like to see some more unity across the board here and be like, Hey, Curtis, can you please not say that to a national media outlet? Because by proxy, it makes us look shitty. Like, that's what I'd be thinking. I would not be happy about that. I mean, like, again, I understand the greater context when you read into it, but when you just read it for face value, how many people are thinking that much deeper into it? And it kind of undercuts some of the other good building that was in there, too, where it's like, yeah, look how great it is. There's certain benefits, but don't get me wrong here. There's still that. And I understand there's also a paragraph or two leading up to it where I want to say it's the owner of the Tennessee Smokey says, Look, 100 out of 100, or 120 out of 120 teams took the development license. That should speak for itself. And yeah, sure. But how many of them were just afraid of what comes next? There's a lot of other unknowns here, too. So, of course. like, I understand the, the article is trying to build, you know, arguments on both sides of the fence. I get it. But having it at the end does seem like it kind of cuts underneath a little bit of all the positive building. So, I, for me personally, I don't think, uh, 
I, I wouldn't be happy about that particular quote where it's like, it, the, the goal is to leave this league. It does make it sound like this is a minor league to a minor league. And I just don't think that's exactly what you want. And it's one thing when, you know, you lose, you lose like a St. Paul. Obviously they did a lot. And if they want to make that decision to leave, they can. And going to AAA is another story. And, you know, that ballpark, it, it's its own case. When you're losing a team that just joined not a week, uh, not a year ago, that was in what, single A, high A? And they're like, yeah, we want to leave already. It, it does speak a lot. And I understand the disappointment. I totally do. But I, it's still, I, I'd rather that not be out there. No, I, I understand that. I, I totally get that. That quote by itself doesn't look great. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that, I mean, if you're, if you gave owner, if you gave owners a choice, would you rather be affiliated or would you rather be, um, independent? Most of them would say, the vast majority of them would say, affiliated and not not that being independent is bad but i think it's more just uh, the more the over the greater message is you can survive and you can thrive as a um, as an independent league team even if you were once an affiliated market i think that's the greater message here i, I won't disagree with that but at the same time i, I do think that it does depend on an ownership and a situation by situation basis you know, there are definitely some in there that mentioned, like, you know, we like this. We think the system's pretty good. And, I mean, there's even, I want to say, the Northern Colorado ownership group or owner or partial owner of that scheme said, we like it and we'd like to do, like, a hybrid type thing where, like, we could get some players from some teams to work as a short A type thing, but we'd still be our own thing, which basically sounds like the old system with uh, more of a roundabout way. But, you know... I, it's still like overall, I just, that just kind of, I didn't love that quote, but uh, there is one more quote from the ESPN article I do want to mention before we move on. And that is from Randy Levine with the Yankees about nostalgic partners, the old group that owned the uh, Stan Island Yankees that's now suing Major League Baseball, that one. Uh, so I'll read, I'll just read the paragraph because it, it really just works better. Randy Levine, president of the Yankees, says Nostalgic turned down Major League Baseball's offer for an independent league team. Quote, It was clear that Nostalgic was incapable of operating a minor league team at the minimum standards, he says. You know? That's a brutal quote right there. That just yeah, basically says... When, when you sue Major League Baseball, you're going to... you're And the Yankees, you're open to... Uh, oh, yeah. You're open to quotes like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like... That's just a choke slam quote there. It's like... You're so incompetent that we're almost glad you didn't take this team because, well, the reason you lost the team was not any sort of collusion. It was because you're incompetent. Like, that's just... I mean, it was a really bad situation there. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was. We just see our interview with Rob Pimpson and really go into detail there. But, yeah, it's something else. But uh, on that note, we are getting along here. So we should probably get to that... Uh, the discussion on the Hall of Fame. And I think for this week, for the sake of brevity in one sense, but also to kind of establish a basis for going forward, because I think next week we'll actually get into the meat and details of who should be in the Hall of Fame, having that argument, uh, is just what should be that baseline? What should be the criteria? How should these people be elected in here? Should there be different categories? Should there just be one general thing? Should it work like the Major League or official Baseball Hall of Fame, rather, or should it be a, its own different thing? I, I want to hear your thoughts on it because I have a whole thing typed out here. Because when I met COVID, I spent way too much time uh, doing this instead of things I should have been doing. 
<laughs> so I think as far as on a basic sense of what I would be looking for, um, as far as what an indie a hypothetical indie ball hall of fame would look like is, um, you look at, of course, you want to represent all pretty much all of the leagues, like the, certainly the major leagues, the the major independent leagues, yeah. uh, the American Association, Frontier League, Atlantic League. I think on a basic sense, the player, if you're going to induct players in, because it's the what it's a little bit complicated just because players maybe are still playing somewhere that's just yeah. not an independent league baseball. So I would say that their playing career has to be done. Yeah. Or at least uh, for at least two years. That's what okay. I'm thinking. Uh, I think that the players' careers have to be done, not just like you haven't played in the Atlantic League for two years because we've seen guys come back. Yeah. Um. So I would say for at least two years, the players' career has to, has to be done. Um. And I think that I'd be more open than I guess we've seen in different hall in other Hall of Fames to inducting non-players, right? Because there yeah. are so many people who have trailblazed. Uh, independent league baseball that are not players, for example, like coaches and owners and uh, general managers and guys that I'd be more, and of course, like commissioners of, of yeah. leagues. I, I think that is more, uh, that is, I think those people are, or I think I'd be more open to inducting those type of people. And, and I think on the player side of things, the more, the important distinction to make here is it's, it's about what they did. Uh, while they played in indie ball and their performances while they played uh, in indie ball, because you know there's there's people who of course have done who have had a ton of major league baseball success that had a brief stint in the major league that had a brief stint or had like one great season in the Atlantic League. For example, like a guy like like Ricky Henderson, who yeah. obviously clear MLB MLB Hall of Famer. Yeah, uh, if he were to now he had one great season in, with the Newark Bears. Is that enough to elect you into the Hall of Fame? No. Yeah. Uh, into the Indie Ball Hall of Fame? No. Of course, nothing against Ricky Henderson, but he played one season in Indie Ball because I think it's a it's a it's a different class of guys, and it's almost a weird dynamic because guys are not trying to be, uh, or guys are not trying to be in independent league baseball for a while. And so it's a little bit of a weird dynamic in that sense, but I think you, you could get come across a, a, a class of, of really good players and, and also front office people, people who work in league offices, coaches as well. For example, like a guy like Sparky Lyle would yeah. be, an, it would be an easy shoe in Hall of Famer from the coaching side of things. Um, and yeah, and then you have to and, have and, guys like Frank Bolton, Miles Wolf, and those kinds of guys need to be in there too. Because I mean, they're they're you know, Bill Lee's another guy. You know, these are you gotta have them in there. Yes, absolutely. So I, I think that's that's more what I'm looking for. And of course, like when Lou Ford retires, like in 2035. Oh, impossible! Maybe, He's never going to retire. Not even in 2035. He's going to play beyond the grave. He he is outplaying Tom Brady at this point. So exactly. Lou Ford, the, I think Lou Ford is the goat. Analytically speaking, I mean the numbers don't lie. He's played longer, so I mean, really, but, exactly. Yeah, this that actually brings up an, an interesting point, though, because I had two people comment about this and definitely wanted their input heard. So we'll definitely mention that. One did say, you know, Miles Wolf and Frank Bolton have to be in there, and that's a no-brainer. Everyone's going to agree on that point, and it brings me to something I'm going to say in a little bit. But the other one was 
that they wanted to have, you know, one great season count. And for me, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that because I think when you're looking at a independent league baseball hall of fame, longevity matters. You know, you want to highlight people that weren't here for one year. Like you said, like Ricky Henderson, for example, or Rich Hill, for example, these guys are well known, no doubt. And their stints with the Atlantic League, well known, no doubt. But at the same time, it's like, I don't want to highlight those guys in particular because there's a dozen guys, you know, Lou Ford, for example, a Mikey Reynolds is a guy that's there, uh, Kurt Smith is another guy, uh, Reggie Abercrombie. These are types of guys that spent the vast majority of their careers in independent league baseball. They've done very well, you know. I'm sure there's dozens of other guys that I, I'm missing right now that, you know, they deserve to be acknowledged, deserve to be mentioned. Because then, if we're just going off of one year, you know, if you're one and done, who's to say then? I mean, like, are we going to count maybe a guy like Jan Hernandez who plays, you know, 65, 70 games and then gets his contract purchased. Does that qualify? He was a great year, no doubt. He probably would have been neck and neck with Brett Walker for the MVP this past year. So, I mean, technically it would have been the best or second best season for 2021 in the American Association. But in my mind, that doesn't really count as a Hall of Fame thing because you did it once. You need to do it a couple of times to really count. You know, so I, right. you know, I, I'm against the single season for that reason. I think longevity really should matter here because it's supposed to celebrate people that, you know, like when I typed up this document, like for the mission statement, I, I had it said, and I think this is something we could kind of agree on is to celebrate and memorial, <coughs> memorialize those whose life's life achievements are in the creation, preservation and expansion of professional independent league baseball in the United States and Canada. Basically, what you did in your professional career benefited independent league baseball in one of the major leagues that spanned the U.S. and Canada, you know, and you made it into what it is today, you know. And like you said, that there has to be different categories, kind of like what the NHL does for the Hockey Hall of Fame, where you have a builder category, you have a coach and kind of an administrator category and a player category. That's kind of how I divvied it up. I think that's the proper way of going about it because then you can induct people in different categories. You don't have a guy like, say, a Frank Bolton will use, for example, because he's a, pretty much the, one of the most well-known people in independent league baseball. He's not going to be fighting against, you know, like a Lou Ford or like a Sparky Lyle. They're each in their own category and they're fighting against, you know, people like themselves and i think that's the proper way of going about it so I, I agree with that right i think that it is a longevity especially when you're talking about a, a hall of fame and it's not really a, how it's not really like a mark on the players themselves like obviously players are playing like nobody wants to be an indie ball for yeah. five six years like of course but for an indie ball hall of fame and guys are really change the game in, in, in independent leagues, I think longevity uh, is important. Now, we're not talking about guys who are like, oh, you need to play like seven or eight years in indie ball. Like, of yeah. course not. Uh, but I think that when, you, when you're looking at uh, – I'm just trying to think of a guy off the top of my head. Um, like John Brownell. You yeah. Know? Uh, like a guy like that for, for, like, for Atlantic League fans. Like that's a guy who, you, who I would put uh, – like into the Hall of Fame because he has so many records. He's such a good pitcher for Long Island for so long. I'm, I think he, he, I, I don't, I believe he didn't pitch this year. So I think, yeah. he, I, I don't could, think he did either. Could, 
So like when he's maybe in like another year or so, he would he would be eligible for like the Indy Ball Hall of Fame. So uh, I think guys like that and to, to recognize those guys who maybe at like at age 31, 32 kind of got uh, overlooked at that point for an MLB uh, for for an MLB organizational uh, contract or a minor league contract. It's a good rec- it's a great recognition for guys like that. So I think I agree. I think longevity is important, but at the same time, like let's not be unrealistic with yeah. You have to play six or seven years in indie ball because there's like you're looking at guys yeah I think, guys who have done that. That's a pretty low number in general. Yeah, like in a guy like Santiago Chirino or Victor Capion, I think yes. those two are great examples as well uh, sure. for guys that have fit that criteria. And that's why, like, like I said, like I have this all pre-typed up, so I'm just going off of that document here. Uh, but I figured, like, for a position player, like 350 games, I think that's a pretty fair number because if you're in the Atlantic League, that's what about two and a half years, and if you're in any of the uh, other ones, yeah. it's about three and a half, yeah. roughly. Yeah, about three. Probably a little bit closer to three, but yeah. Yeah, so it's about three to four years. I think that's a, fair, a pretty fair number, to be honest. I'd be willing, yeah. willing to knock it down a little bit. I'd be willing to go to like either 275 or 300, if you think that's more of a fair number. But by and large, I think that's pretty good. I mean, like, it's fairly realistic that someone could be around for three or four years. And I think a guy that's been around for that long, if we're being honest with ourselves here... Every year you're sticking around, to lowering your odds of getting picked up somewhere. So it really is to more, again, celebrate those guys that never really got a chance and then said, okay, well, I'm going to make my career here instead. So I think for that, it should be that one. And then I think, uh, see, the book becomes difficult for, uh, for the pitcher side of things is how you're going to do that. Because if you're a reliever, you're not going to rack up as many innings, but if you're, also reliever we can't go off of starts either so pitching is one thing i don't really know how how to do that one yeah i think like there's yeah pitching it's hard to put like a statistic on it yeah um i mean you could you could just go by the number of seasons but in the sense that like if you make like 14 starts that's like half a season right yeah or uh or like i was I think, thinking i think i don't think it would be as hard as you think it would be to kind of gauge yeah because, what is what is good enough for like a to kind of like a full season you know yeah because at first i was thinking the bar for starters would be 125 starts but now that i say that it does seem like an awful lot um so maybe knock that down to like 80 or so i think that'd be pretty fair i think that you know, it's not unrealistic that someone would start 20 games in a season. I think that's, you know, especially for like the Atlantic League that, you know, has that extra, you know, 20 some odd games, 40 some odd games some years. I think you could definitely get 20 starts there. Uh, in the 100 game season ones, yeah, it's, you're probably pushing 20. You're probably more like uh, 17, 18. So I think maybe like 80 starts. I think you could go off of that. If we wanted to still go off of just like, like that, as far as like the relievers go, maybe do something similar on that front there too. Because I mean, if you're a reliever, you're probably getting into what, 35, 40 games. Yeah. I mean, if you're around for a full year, maybe even a little more than that. Yeah. So, I mean, if we say go with 120 games total there, I think that's because I'm trying to keep it on that roughly three to four year track. I think that you got to keep it consistent if you're going to do it. 
Right. I, I think consistency, especially for criteria, is the uh, is is the is the important part. But I think like yeah, that number seems about right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if we're trying to if we're trying to hit that three to four year benchmark. Yeah. So. I think we can be in, so we want to keep the 350 games for the position player or do we want to knock that one down too? Um, I think anywhere from 325 to like 350, I think that's good. All right. So I said we keep the 350 for where it is. Knock the, uh, the game start down to 80 because I think that's, yeah. you know, that's fair. Plus pitchers also have that tendency to get picked up quicker too because, you know, yeah, pitchers, that's like a little over three seasons, like three full seasons. Yeah. So I think 80 is fair there. And then for the pitching game, we're going to say 125. Sure. We could do that. All right. So we'll go 125 on that. And of course, I'll, uh, I'll post a screenshot of the whole document thing with all of our requirements and whatnot in here too. So that way people can, when you go to suggest your own, I mean, the listeners here, when you go to suggest your own people, you'll have the basis to go off. We'll put it on the Instagram. We'll put it on the Twitter as well. Um, as far as the coaching requirements, what do we think for that? Because I feel like for coaches, you can be a lot more strict with it. Yeah, I think coaches, I don't know, because I think coaches, I'm all right if they're still active. Yeah. like that, They do that in basketball. Yeah, I'm totally cool with that. You know, like, I feel like, I feel like 400 games, and I don't care if you're still adding to it. As long as you get to the 400 game threshold, I think you're good. You know, like, yeah. I feel like 400 is a very good number there because either you're, if you're in the Frontier League, you're at 96. So it's a, like a shade over four seasons. Um, American Association is four on the nose. And then, you know, Atlantic League, it's basically three, a little over three. So I think 400 yeah. is a pretty good number. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll keep 400 on that. Uh, as far as like a, for a league administrator, this is the kind of the tough one. Because I didn't want to exclude like GMs or front office staff. Because I do think there's probably at least one or two that have been out there that deserve recognition. You know, I just have no way of quantifying that number. Yeah, you can't. You, you yeah. just can't. Like, like you got to go strictly based off like just accomplishments and what you're thinking. Because like, yeah. of course, you can't be like, all right, they have to be retired. Okay, well, they've been around for like 30 plus years, right? Yeah, so even, so, even retirement aside, like, I, this is like, oh, well, you have to be with uh, or in independently based for like 10 years or something? Like, I don't, I don't really know how to how to go off that because I don't want someone that just kind of showed up was like, all right, we are here the first year we were independent and now I'm peacing out. Like, I don't want that there, but at the same time, it's like, well... I mean, maybe like maybe like it work, it have to work for an indie ball team for eight years, maybe. You know, I'm down for eight. Yeah, I, I'd be cool with that. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I'm gonna change ten to eight because I had ten originally written down here. But but yeah, I'm I'm down for eight. I think eight's a realistic thing here. Um, the other criteria I had, they had to have made some sort of lasting mark on the team or league they're associated Definitely. with. I, that's kind of a given. Yep. Um, and that's just kind of for the builder category. I think that's kind of it because those are harder to quantify. If you're a commissioner, I think it's kind of harder too because they don't always last, but some of them are around. I feel like obviously a guy like Miles Hope's going in, a guy like, uh, uh, Frank Bolton's going in. There's dozens of other guys like that that will be going in, but, uh, you know, 
it, the, I feel like those ones are just more obvious. Like everything else here, we kind of have to lay it out. But I feel like there's only a few like Titan type people that would be considered a builder that everyone would go, yeah, they, they deserve to be in and we get the votes for it. So, uh, for right. that, uh, that's all, all I really have for criteria. I'm just going to kind of go through here. Um, and just look through here. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's pretty much all I have on that front there. I laid out like yeah. a whole formalization process if we were to, you know, formalize it all as opposed to just yeah. kind of throwing out names here. But I feel like it's a pretty good basis to go off of. Yeah, I agree. I think that you kind of hit all the categories and the, the, the criteria. I think. I think we could, I think we could work with this and the fans could work with it. Yeah, no, I think we definitely have a solid, a solid base here. So we will turn this over to the fans now. We want to hear your suggestions, your ideas for players that you would put in an independent league hall of fame. And, uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll just form a ballot and, uh, get some people to vote on this and then, you know, formally make it a thing. Who knows? That's right. But and unlike and unlike the Baseball Writers uh, Association of America, we do not think that we are above God Himself. So I do. Speak for yourself. Yeah. I do. <laughs> I think I am the hype. You should join. You should join the Baseball Writers Association. I would love America. to. Trust me, I submit a blank ballot every year. <laughs> you, I, you definitely would, wouldn't you? See, I'll save it for my thing to add because I honestly don't see the issue with it. But, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think there's. There's. I don't think there's an inherent issue with yeah. it. I just. I just disagree with the current, like the ballots that because I think that there are people that are deserving that were not voted for. But no, there is nothing wrong with submitting a blank ballot if everyone on the ballot is not worthy of being a Hall of Famer. I don't have a problem with that. But I just think that there were plenty of people on the ballot that were worthy of being a Hall of Famer. I'll see, see this, the thing though, if you don't have an issue with, you know, the actual practice of submitting the ballot, then it really just comes down to an individual opinion on, do you think anyone listed here is a Hall of Famer? And if the answer is no for that individual, then yeah, I'm going to submit it blank. I also disagree. I think there's at least one guy every year that's probably worth it. But if you don't, I'm not like, take their ballot away. They don't deserve to have it, all that crap. It's like, well, hey. They just didn't see anybody they thought was worthy of the Hall of Fame. And as we discussed last week, it's an additional honor. You know, it's not like it's a life or death thing here. So, yay. No one got voted in. Right. I think, I think the idea of a blank ballot is fine. Like, I, I really don't have an issue with it, but I just think that given the people on the ballot, I think that, uh, I think that that's kind of absurd because I thought there were a lot of people that did. I thought there were a lot of options on that ballot that did deserve a vote. So mm. that's just how I feel. But, but uh, all right then. So from there, I think we're kind of done. We turn this over to fans now to send in your suggestions, ideas for the ballot, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. So Let's do it. Yeah. On that note. We'll go to our plugs and get out of here. You've got a real-length show today. I have no idea how long it's going to be after I wind up editing it, after dealing with all these tech issues, because there's definitely going to be conversations that got cut off. There was nothing I could really do about. So hopefully we're still over the hour mark, but we're at like an hour 17 now, so I have a good idea that we're going to be well over the hour, uh, which is always good to see. We'll finally be back on that track after a bunch of like a three-quarter hour shows. So uh, uh, if you want to follow... Yeah, exactly. It's winter, plus I also 
contribute to the fact that for a while I couldn't really talk for an hour, uh, you know, because still COVID recovery. But we're pretty much, well, actually, we are pretty much 100% now. So we're pretty good. I haven't really coughed all too much during the, uh, during this week's show. So we're doing real good. Uh, so yeah, you want to follow the show. You want to be able to find, uh, the ballot that we're going to put out or make your suggestions, find those requirements that we're going to be listed. You could do so, uh, on the Twitter at IndieBallPod or on Instagram, uh, IndieBallReport there and also AOPB underscore news as well. If you want to find links to any of the articles we mentioned today, any of the tried information we mentioned today, any, anything on the show, go to the website, IndieBallReport.com. Uh, in the show notes, you will find everything, uh, timestamps, description, uh, the whole nine, everything there is, uh, is going to be in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Also, you can subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts. So, so podcatchers like, uh, Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, which is a popular one, according to the breakdown, uh, Podomatic is the main host of the show. So you could also listen to, uh, shows there, uh, tune in Stitcher, uh, Spotify as well. Anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find the show. Uh, so be sure to rate and review if you can on that platform. So, uh, we continue to grow. And uh, next week, we are going to have an interview with the Pioneer League president, Mike Shapiro. So you'll want to stay tuned for that one. Um, with that said, do we have anything else left to add? I know what I want to add. Okay. Because I don't, I don't think I mentioned this. Okay. Because, uh, no, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, we recorded before you went to the one list. Game. This will be my thing to add. Okay. It was goalie interference. It, it was clearly, clearly goalie interference. Strom stick pushed Ken's Talbot right pad into the goal. That is goalie interference. It, to, Rangers fans claiming the game got stolen from them to me was insane. I, I thought it was a pretty clear case of goaltender interference. I, I didn't think it was honestly that close and that's why the call on the ice was confirmed. Uh, you cannot push goalies pads into the goal and then score. That's called goalie interference. So, uh, yeah. I I disagree with it. I don't think Strom really pushed him in. Uh, I'm not going to go much further on it. I'm kind of over it. It's disappointing people threw trash on the ice. Although I do understand the emotion because you don't make that call at that particular point. They beat themselves by playing like trash themselves for about right. two they full did, periods. They did play bad. They played really bad and in the second and third period. So... I'm not going to be all too pissed off about it, but at the same time, I personally think it should have been a goal. I also don't think you call it a no goal, given the circumstance, but I'm not going to get too worked up over it, and uh, I'm going to leave it at that because I've, I've gotten over it, and I, I don't want to get all all too high and mighty into it. So That's uh, awfully mature of you, Nick. Yep. Yep. Uh, that, I, I, I'm surprised. I know. It is rather surprising that I'd be the one doing that, but... It also does help that we're, you know, like two points out first in the Metro. So it really doesn't matter all too much. It's just kind of disappointing that that's the night that that happened on. And I'm just kind of used to the NHL making whatever call they really kind of feel like. Because, well, yeah, I think if you go by the book, it may be the right call. Historically, it hasn't been called by the book. So it's kind of like, hey, don't start calling it by the book now. Either you call it the way it's been called. Or you call it by the book, and we go ahead and we call everything by the book. Let's not do this one or the other thing. Let's get consistency here. But uh, 
leaving that note, I do want to just add one last thing here, which is it took me until about a week ago to realize that the saying the fall nine is reference to a baseball game and not like football for whatever reason. For whatever reason, I really thought it was like the full nine yards. And I was like, it's 10 for a first down. Why is it nine? And so it was always confusing to me, but I never really questioned it that heavily because it's, you know, not that important. And I was like, wait a minute, you idiot. The full nine innings. There's nine innings in baseball. Hence the full nine. Did you really not know that? Yeah, like I never thought about it all too much. For whatever reason, I always associated it with football, not baseball. So I don't know why. Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to add that. That That's pretty much it. So I was just like, yeah, that does make sense, doesn't it? Wow. <laughs> that was pretty obvious in hindsight. But, uh, but yeah. Then also, I finally managed to complete the tour of the of all the movies I wanted to see in 2020. So next week, we're going to do probably uh, Super Bowl predictions because, you know, Super Bowl. But oh, yeah. week after that, I'm going to just dive headlong into movies. Now, I want to know, because I need your opinion on this before I go headlong into it. Would you consider something to be a 2021 movie review, even if you saw a movie that came out in 21 in 22? Or does that have to be only what you saw in 21? I'm just confused. Okay, what? so... So a movie releases in 2021, okay? Okay. You do not it. see it until 2022. Got it. Do you still review that for a 2021 review, even though you did not see it in the year it was released? Yeah, I think you could do that for a 2021 movie review. Okay. Because I want to know, because that does affect my top three, if we do it that way. I think that's fine. Okay. Because I'm only going to do top three because we don't got enough time in this end segment for you to go top five and still, you know, talk about it. Talk about it in depth. So, all right. So, I think we've gotten plenty here. I don't think there's anything else left to add. So, uh, until next week, don't forget to play ball.